There is no reason that antibodies developed to the spike protein will have anything whatsoever to do with the ability of a spermatozoa to fertilize an ovum. Period. End of story. Welcome to the Rain Insights on COVID-19 podcast. I'm Emily Donahue. In the United States, as a new vaccine was released and more doses became available, some governors announced an end to mask mandates. But was that wise? In today's episode, RAIN founder David Lawrence speaks with doctors Fred Southwick and Bill Lang about new developments in the fight against COVID-19. Bill and Fred, thank you once again for taking the time to share acquired wisdom and uh, some additional insights around the data and what's happening. Perhaps we'll start uh, with recent announcements of relaxation of various uh, safety procedures uh, in states such as Texas, Tennessee, also Mississippi, but also uh, was reading this morning how uh, restaurant rules in Massachusetts are going to be relaxed to potentially allow for 100% capacity. Maybe we could just start by getting your perspective and on this and what people should be doing. Well, I, you know, I can speak to this. Um, one of the, and Bill, I know will weigh in, uh, one of the big concerns are these variants. And uh, if we loosen, stop using masks, then these variants will begin to take hold because the more uh, people are talking to each other and spreading the virus, they have a selective advantage, these uh, these mutants or these variants, in that they're more efficient at causing, at, at actually spreading the disease. Therefore, they will uh, begin to predominate. If we all continue to follow the CDC guidelines, then they will not spread as readily and there'll be less of a, much less of a problem. The other key element is that we are nowhere close to herd immunity. We're at, uh, the best estimates are about 20% in some areas. If you model that out, 20% doesn't help very much at all. So you can still get rampant and very rapid spread of disease with only 20% vaccinated. So this is a grave, grave mistake. So last week, if we were having the same conversation, one of the things that I would have pointed out, just kind of taking a little bit of a different view on this, is that California and Florida had totally opposite approaches to the restrictions. California heavily restricted Florida uh, no restrictions and are very minimal. And yet they had almost identical numbers. Well, over the past week, that's changed. Florida is still greater than 25 cases per 100,000 per day, which is typically considered the level of uncontrolled widespread community transmission. Whereas California is now down to within rounding error of 10 cases per 100,000 per day, which is down where it's almost at the level of being considered sporadic. So the, the tighter control has made a difference. The, the, the only other comment is that some of these states, the, the governors have not said that it is not important to mask and take all the all the various uh, non-pharmaceutical intervention measures. They've just said that it's not the role of the government to do that. But we know that if the government does not take a position um, and does not have some degree of enforcement, there is not going to be uh, any good control of, of mask wearing and uh, social distancing and those t- similar types of measures. 
Exactly, Bill. And one of the big concerns is those that have to work in this environment are forced to work in bars or restaurants. Uh, if the if people are not wearing masks, are not not socially distancing, they are at grave risk of getting infection. And Fred, I think before the call, you were citing to uh, even some early statistics that are now coming out of Texas, for example. Yes, the the right now uh, the the number of cases is rising, and there was an increase over the last week of fourteen percent. So how can you uh, relax infection control measures uh, while the ep- the epidemic is actually worsening? That is backwards and makes no sense. And as Bill, I agree. <laughs> yeah, and as uh, Bill pointed out, these things may be recalibrated depending upon what, what is happening. But um, there is a political or philosophical issue at hand. The uh, leading grocery store chain, one of the things that they are concerned about, they actually would like to have all the customers masked up and otherwise complying with using sanitizers, etc. But they're also very much aware that this can cause arguments and, quite frankly, confrontations on their premises, even to ask people to put on a mask in light of these pronouncements. We know that if the government doesn't lay down the law, uh, compliance standards will be uh, obviously very lax, notwithstanding what the statistics show. So I don't know if you have any advice for institutions that are operating in these states, but I'm sure they'd welcome any perspective. I think one of the biggest things is in in most states, um, there has not been a prohibition on facilities having their own requirements to to protect their employees. Um, But there is going to be that issue of, you know, in a state like Texas, if a major food store was to say, you can't come in here without having a mask on, you're going to get some Texans who are going to say, no, I don't have to wear a mask. And the store can rightly say, well, then you don't have to come in here. But that's going to create a conflict. So this will be, uh, unfortunately, interesting to see how this plays out. But, you know, it's like we say in medicine, you never want to be an interesting case. <laughs> yeah, one one of the things that became very clear when, the, when asked, when the public health experts and physicians in Texas, when they were asked if the governor got their advice or cleared this with them, they all uh, stated that he had not. Politicians who did not go to medical school, who were not trained in public health, who do not understand infection control, should not be declaring what the policy should be. They should be listening to their experts. Uh, and I've talked to a lot of fellow physicians about this, and I'm sure Bill can weigh in as well. When these decisions are made and there's a surge of hospitalizations, then we as physicians have to manage these very, very ill patients. And these decisions are truly life and death decisions. You know, it is so important that that education be a part of this. So regardless of whether the rules are being made or we're allowing the public to make their own decisions, if we're not educating the public, marketing as to what the the realities of mask wearing and other non-pharmaceutical interventions are, then that multiplies any problems. Um, some of these states, Tennessee, for example, has a very extensive public health outreach uh, program to, to try to 
teach people to do the right thing rather than forcing them to do the right thing. Um, but other states are not doing that to the same extent. So I think that that's, that's an, another component of it. But it, it, is, it is a very uh, politically charged situation, unfortunately, um, and will continue to be. Obviously, important points about aligning education and incentives uh, to get people to do the right thing and uh, obviously taking these issues out of the political realm and bringing them into uh, the scientific. I'll just note that one of the suggestions uh, that came out of our discussions uh, with the client was the possibility of offering a coupon of 5 or $10 in exchange for uh, being compliant and wearing a mask while shopping. So we'll see if that experiment potentially might work out. Uh, I also wanted to note something that uh, we have discussed off offline, it may come as a surprise to people uh, that one of the most effective states in managing the pandemic risk, rolling out the vaccine, uh, gaining compliance, has been the state of West Virginia. And uh, maybe in a future podcast, we'll unpack why that is and how that came about, uh, because I think that might uh, serve as a very, very good object uh, lesson. Let me switch to a separate topic. Our last podcast Johnson & Johnson's vaccine was um, about to be approved by the FDA. It has been. It's been rolled out. Uh, there are questions, uh, understandably, in the consumer minds about which vaccine might be better, and there are reports about relative efficacy rates. Uh, maybe you guys can unpack this and give people uh, the advice they need uh, if, in fact, the Johnson Johnson vaccine is being offered in their communities. Sure. Well, the, the the biggest thing about the Johnson Johnson vaccine, like the two mRNA vaccines, is that it has incredibly good efficacy against serious disease and death. And when we look back at what really got us started down this road of, of the fears of coronavirus, it was not just the fact that it was something that gave you gave people the flu or flu like syndrome. It was that it, it was people were ending up in the ICU and were dying. So now we have a tool, a, a, another tool that will prevent serious disease and death. And then, for, so from that standpoint, this is roughly the equivalent of the other two. The, the issue is that when you look just at preventing any disease, the two mRNA vaccines have an efficacy of 95% whereas the efficacy in the United States of the of the J&J &J vaccine is in the mid-70s. Uh, so at, at one level, people will look at that and say, well, I want something that's 95% effective. If you're giving me something that's only 75% effective, well, you're giving me an inferior product. But really, what are you looking at? What we're looking at is how do we prevent serious disease and death. That's where that's what the cost to people, that's what the cost to society is coming from. So the the exchange for the J&J &J vaccine is that it's only one shot. You're you're one and done. So in some in in some populations it may be very very difficult to reach out to that population twice to know that you've gotten to the the same person twice that they're getting the same type of vaccine twice even though the efficacy may be slightly lower if you can get to that those types of population with a single shot vaccine that does stop disease 
and, and death, especially in at-risk populations, well, you've won. That is a huge victory. Um, so I encourage people, as we hear about the rollout of this vaccine, there is the possibility that you will hear that some uh, medically underserved, medically disadvantaged populations are being given an inferior product because they're being given the the J&J vaccine. And that's just not true. There are trade-offs in just about anything. The truth is that getting a vaccine that's one shot and you're done is incredibly powerful for exactly this type of population. Bill, I completely agree. And the other uh, key characteristic of this vaccine, it can be stored in the refrigerator. So this makes it much easier to transport and to store. And those will be very important in rural areas. Um, If I hadn't gotten the uh, uh, Pfizer vaccine, I would definitely go for the J&J vaccine because uh, the bottom line is I don't want to be hospitalized and obviously I don't want to die. And that those two characteristics, the efficacy is 100%. The other thing, J&J has studied this in South Africa, and it does appear it's uh, got uh, reasonable efficacy there as well. So that is very encouraging for the South African uh, variant. And and then in terms of variants, all three vaccines are, the manufacturers are looking at um, modifications to vaccines to cover the variants if that is needed. Um, Fortunately, with the mRNA vaccines, if you have both both vaccinations and you're 14 days out, it appears that the efficacy against all of the various strains is still very good. Um, but it's it's also at the same time nice to know that the ability to have a modified vaccine for a you know current or even future um, uh, new strain that may be more virulent is very very possible to do. And now that we have the vehicles in place and they've been through at least the authorization, not the full approval process, you know those those kinds of changes could be made and rolled out very quickly. So the takeaway that uh, from your perspective. First of all, um, people shouldn't try to figure out which one is the most effective. They're all good. They all work. Uh, the notion of perfection uh, is the enemy of the good may may take hold here. And for a variety of reasons, uh, because of efforts to get to herd immunity, et cetera, um, you, neither one of you would have a, any hesitation about taking the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. I would know. Uh, I, no I agree. I, I've consistent when people ask me what is the best vaccine, I consistently say, and I still believe this: it's the first vaccine that someone is willing to put into your arm. Great advice. A topic that has come up both in social media, but just quite frankly in questions that have been posed within our network, uh, is whether women who are either pregnant or thinking about becoming pregnant should wait in terms of their uh, taking the vaccine. And, you know, there is a certain amount of, I'll I'll call it rumor speculation, that this can interfere with either a safe pregnancy or becoming pregnant. And maybe I could call upon you to sort of share what you know and how people should be thinking about this who are obviously either starting a family or about to start a family. Bill Bill has looked into this more than I am. I just want to share the uh, cell biology part of this, and that is that the 
the vaccines are all directed against the spike protein of the virus. This protein is different than any protein in the human body and will not cross-react, as far as we know, with any human protein. Therefore, it is highly unlikely to have any impact on reproductive health. So it's very interesting where the initial rumors about this, the vaccine causing problems with uh, reproduction started. What we understand is that because this is against the spike protein on the virus, as Fred said, this rumor by non-medical people got got started that, oh, well, if it's keeping this spike protein from being able to enter the cell, then it's going to have the same effect on the head of a sperm trying to enter the cell of an ovum. Obviously, those are totally unrelated. I mean, it's, it's, it's worse than apples and oranges. There is no reason that antibodies developed to the spike protein will have anything whatsoever to do with the ability of a, a spermatozoa to fertilize an ovum, period, end of story. So then we go on, and then there's the, the concern about, which is a very valid concern, anytime you have a new immunologic product, a vaccine, and you're dealing with pregnancy, you're dealing with fetuses, um, that does concern people. But there's been a fair amount of pregnant women who were inadvertently included in the initial studies, and then now experience with women who are pregnant and who are getting vaccinated uh, as part of the standard programs. And there is no evidence whatsoever that this vaccine affects a fetus in any way or affects uh, the ongoing pregnancy in any way. Whereas if somebody, if a woman is to get infected with COVID-19 and especially develop the high fever that it can be associated with this, a high fever in and of itself can have uh, toxic effects on the fetus. Plus, if it's later in pregnancy, can cause preterm labor, neither of which are good outcomes. So the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology and then subsequently the World Health Organization both looked at this. They both looked at the, the data pro and con, and they both put out actually very good, very readable papers, especially the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology put out a very good paper that went through the science, went through the data very thoroughly and came down very strongly that pregnant women should not be afraid of getting the vaccine, but should be afraid of getting the virus because not only are they at increased risks to themselves, but it presents an increased risk to the fetus. One other thing, David, if, if uh, there's some concern about breastfeeding, and actually I was privy to some preliminary data looking at those who were women who were vaccinated and looked at uh, the contents of their breast milk. And it turns out that uh, after vaccination, IgA levels against the spike protein are very significant. And therefore, the uh, newborn will actually, by ingesting that IgA, will be partly protected from the coronavirus. So this is actually a positive. So the takeaways here uh, seem rather clear, both in terms of protecting the mother and protecting the fetus and protecting the newborn. And I know you're both fathers and grandparents, and so you would have no hesitation about giving this advice to your daughters, your daughter-in-laws, etc. 
My daughter is 35 weeks pregnant right now, and she got the vaccine last week on my recommendation. I would definitely recommend it for any pregnant woman. Knowing both of you, if there is any new data that changes that, uh, I'm sure you'll be on top of it. Fred, Bill, as always, uh, insights have been invaluable and uh, plain speaking as well. Thank you, as always, for giving so generously of your time. Thank you, David. Thank you, David. Dr. Bill Lang is an expert in public health responses to biological incidents, including pandemics. Dr. Fred Southwick is an infectious disease specialist at the University of Florida College of Medicine. Individuals and organizations turn to RAIN for risk intelligence that cuts through the hype to focus on what they need to know, what to expect, and what to do. Sign up for our coronavirus solution to get critical information on the COVID-19 pandemic delivered daily. Visit us at rainnetwork.com. That's R-A-N-E network.com. I'm Emily Donahue. Thanks for listening.